We're continuing our study through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Last time we saw that David had some serious problems with two of his sons, Amnon and Absalom. And if you ever remember, Amnon had raped his half-sister Tamar, and then he rejected her and had her kicked out of his home, and he did nothing to help her. Then Absalom took her into his home after he found out what happened, and he tried to comfort her and to help her. And at that point, David should have done something about it. He should have stepped in and dealt with his son Amnon for the horrible crime that he committed against his half-sister, but David did nothing. So Absalom waited two years for David to deal with the situation, but since never, David never did deal with it, Absalom decided to take the law into his own hands, and he had Amnon killed. So after that, Absalom fled to the area of Geshur and lived there for three years, where he was hiding out in case David did decide to come after him. I think after watching David the last two years and how he did not deal with his son Amnon, I think Absalom felt pretty safe knowing that his dad, King David, probably wasn't going to do anything about his situation either. You know, when parents turn a blind eye to their children, especially when their children actually break the law, they shouldn't be surprised when their kids start to do worse and worse things. You know, they know their parents aren't going to do anything about it. So we're not helping ourselves or our kids or other people who might get hurt by them when we choose to overlook our children's horrible behavior. You know, David's problems are only going to increase because he ignored his responsibility to reprimand his uh, rebellious adult children. This is going to be a, a pretty complicated study today, so just put on your thinking caps early and let's go through this process together. Uh, you'll see why it's complicated, I think, when we get deeper into this study. So uh, we're going to jump back into the story in 2 Samuel chapter 13, the last couple of verses in the chapter, down to verse 38. It says, So Absalom fled, and he went to Geshur, and he was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So after David had experienced some amount of healing about his son, Amnon's death, he got to the point where he really wanted to be reconciled with his other son, Absalom. And David hadn't done anything to get that process started, though, because as king, I don't think he wanted to give the appearance, you know, that he was letting Absalom get away with his vigilante-style murder of his brother Amnon. Uh, David was afraid that he might set a very bad example if he just allowed Absalom to come back scot-free. So David was in a real dilemma at this point as both father and king. So he's got a, a very difficult decision to make as he, he has to deal with this. And for the most part, he just kind of puts it on the shelf. And that's not helping anything in his situation. So chapter 14 of verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and this is the, uh, the general basically of David's army, he perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. So Joab wants to do something about getting Absalom back because he knew that this was the longing of David's heart. So Joab comes up with a plan and he's not going to let David in on this plan. So what he does, he actually comes out as quite a manipulator in the way that he sets this up and he does it. So verse 2, it says, Joab sent to Tekoa 
and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner. So he's going to set up this little drama and he's going to get David involved in it. And he's picking this very wise woman. And uh, he says, do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. So he's picked up this, this lady. Somehow he's found this woman that he knew was going to be exactly what he needed for his plan. Okay, She's known to be wise. Uh, she was older, so she would seem more reliable. Uh, she was a widow. And let's put verse three with this because he's going to add something to he's going to tell her now I want you to go to the king and I want you to speak to him in this manner so Joab puts the words in her mouth so he gives her the strip the script for this play that he wants her to be involved in and the whole thing is to work on David okay that's his goal so this lady you know she's a widow and that would tug at David's heart she was from a distant place, so it would be very difficult for David to check out her story without taking a lot of time and sending people back and forth to check everything. And then on top of that, here's Joab telling her exactly what to say because Joab knows David, and he, just, he knows just what buttons to push you know, to get him to go along with this, this scheme, this plan. So this whole thing was a setup. Now you get to verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. <laughs> you know, if people went to their, their local judges in their town in Israel and they felt that the verdict they received was not just, then they could bring their case to the king. And he'd be kind of like the Supreme Court who could overrule some of these previous decisions. So this really wouldn't seem out of the ordinary for this woman to come to David with her story. So at this point, David wouldn't suspect anything was going on. He's just thinking, here's a lady who got a bad deal, according to what she saw, and she wants David to make a call on this one. So he's, that's kind of his normal day, I guess, when they're not at battle or something. So verse 5, it says, Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow my husband is dead. Now, when David had this conversation with this woman, I want you to pay attention to something here. Notice how much time he spends with her, okay? This shows us that David does care about people. And this is really important to see because later on, he's going to be accused of not taking care of the people in his kingdom, that, that he really doesn't have a heart for him, that he's just you know, ruling over them as the boss and he doesn't care about the folks. So it's, it's good to see the Lord shows us here, David has a heart for people. He really does care, okay? Now, this woman said her husband is dead. So with her husband gone, this widow is going to have to rely on her sons to take care of her. Thankfully, she said she had two sons. So it's like, okay, someone can still provide for her. In their culture, it would be extremely hard for a lady to survive, you know, without... Uh, a lot of problems because her husband is gone and uh, the sons now are going to have to fill in that in and take care of her. So verse 6, now your maidservant had two sons and the two fought with each other in the field and there was no one to part them but the one struck the other and killed him. Now this woman was careful to explain that, that this was an accidental death. You know things had gotten out of control and one of them ended up 
dead. So verse 7 goes on, and now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. She's talking about herself. And they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my member that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. So she explains her troubles, you know, and, and they just, it just gets worse and worse as she goes on with the story. Because now, the, after losing a son, uh, the rest of the family wanted vengeance. You know, but if, if they kill the remaining son, the only one she's got left, then she's getting across this idea that she's going to have no one to take care of her. You know, as she put it, then they would extinguish my, mem- my ember that is left. And, you know, an ember from a fire, just one ember isn't very much. You know, if you've got a huge fire, that's wonderful. But she was saying that this is ember is all I have left, you know. And if they take that away, it's like I'm barely surviving now. I don't have a raging fire to warm me. I've got just this ember, the one son. So she said that if this last son dies, then his death would also end the family name of her husband. So David realized this is a serious situation in their culture. You know, if, if you have uh, no family line left here, that means your family name is going to come to an end. And that was seen as a real tragedy for these folks. So she was saying that this is exactly what's going to happen if David doesn't step in and help her. All right. So verse 8, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. So David tells her basically that, that she can go home. He was going to protect her situation, so she really doesn't have to worry about a thing. And that's what he's trying to get across from her, across to her. So verse 9 goes on. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So she's setting David up here, and she's really good at it. <laughs> she's saying that, This is her problem and her family's problem. And she's not trying to put this on David's shoulders and and make it his problem. She was just asking him to make a ruling on it, you know. By saying these things, though, she's actually giving David a possibility where he could step out of this and say, well, then, okay, I won't really do anything extra to help you. I'll just send you home and say, don't worry about it, okay. So this comes across as pretty sneaky (laughs) because she knows David's going to help her out. You know, I mean, she's a widow and she already lost one son. And now she faces the possibility of losing her last son, her last hope. What decent guy would not want to help her in that situation? Okay, so she's kind of laying it on a little bit here. Uh, Verse 10. So the king said, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, the king, (laughs) And he shall not touch you anymore. (laughs) So David promises to give her personal protection. This is the protection of the king. Okay? You don't get any higher than that in this world. So she has got David where she wants him. And she is just reeling him in. He doesn't realize that he's been had yet, that she is working on him. Because she knows, that, like I said, Joab told her which buttons to push. And David just going right down, right down the line. A widow, she's hurting, family name coming to in. I can't, I can't stand any of this, so i got to do something about it. Okay. Now again, look how David wants to help this hurting widow. 
You know, he obviously cares about pe- his people because he's, he's not going to get a, anything from helping her out. What, what does he get from that? Nothing, right? It's probably going to cost him some time and real effort, you know, to make sure she's taken care of. And, you know, when we really care about people, it's going to cost us something. The greatest picture of that was God the Father, who was willing to allow his own son to be our sacrifice so we could be reconciled to him. Having our sins washed away by the blood of Christ was a great cost to, the, to our Heavenly Father. Uh, verse 11 there. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God. You're going to bring God in this. And do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So she was saying, remember the Lord your God. And by that statement, she was reminding David that the Lord, he would find a way to help someone out that was in a dire situation. You know, implying that David should be willing to find a way to help her out too. Now, don't you see this is interesting? David's already said, I'm going to help you. Okay, but can you please help me? Okay, I'm going to help you. Yeah, but, but can you really help me? I'm in a bad situation. And she just keeps pulling him deeper and deeper is what's going on here. She mentions too here the, the avenger of blood. If you remember that, and we studied that back with the law before, according to the law, it was the responsibility of the nearest relative to avenge the blood of the family member that got killed. And that was only if, you know, it was an outright murder and there was supposed to be a trial to determine if that was the case. If you remember, that's what the cities of refuge were set up for in Israel. They'd be a place where a person could go to be protected, you know, until they could receive a fair trial and see whether they were innocent or guilty. So it appears that this lady was asking David to go around the system and just declare her son innocent. So at the end of verse 11, David completely agrees to protect her son. That's what he said. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now, wait a minute, David. (laughs) You may not know the whole story here. What if it wasn't as innocent as the lady said? You know, he didn't investigate this or check it out. He's just believing this poor widow, right? So this is where I believe this widow is trying to get David to this point. And this was all through Joab's coaching, If they could get David to go around the law for her son, then it wouldn't be a far stretch at all for David to go around the law for his own son, Absalom. And this is where it gets a little sticky. You know, some people say that David ignored justice here. You know, as the king, he was responsible to uphold the law, right? Not step step around it or try to find a way to go around it. But he did just that when he guaranteed her son's safety before he had a trial. So some totally disagree with what David did here. And that widow, she was going to use this slip of David. I don't know what else you would call it that he did. She was going to use that to turn against him and his lack of restoring his own son, Absalom. Either way, though, if David went too far in stretching mercy over the law here, You know, this wise widow has drawn David fully into her situation. So now she's ready to spring the deal on David. 
in verse 12. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. So she confronts David and she says, if this is what you really believe, then why haven't you shown your own son this kind of mercy? So you see what she did? She kind of stretched mercy pretty long distance here and David agreed to it and said, amen. So then she flips it around and says, why don't you give your own son that kind of mercy, okay? So she accuses him of being guilty of a double standard. And isn't it interesting how at times we can, without thinking about it, we show more grace to others and not show the same grace to our own families. It's just amazing. I don't know how our mind does that sometimes, but we can get caught with this too. Well, this woman goes so far as saying that David was doing something against the people of God. Wow, that's, that's a heavy accusation. So this older lady, she's very bold to address the king this way, but she's letting him know that the people of the land, they're not upset over what Absalom did by killing his half-brother. They understand, and they rather agree with what Absalom did, and they probably think that David should have done something about it at that time, you know, when it first happened to avoid such an awkward situation now. You know, David's not making reconciliation with Absalom. Absalom is off in another place. Uh, and, and Absalom, remember, this is why it's such a big deal to the nation. Absalom's in line to be the next king. <laughs> so look at that picture. You've got the reigning king kind of holding the next king at bay here and not making peace with him. He's just sitting off in another town at a distance, you know. So the people are probably thinking, well, David's getting older, and there's the next king, and he's kind of exiled right now, so what's coming, you know? And as they heard the story of what Absalom did, they probably weren't upset. They understood he's defending his sister, and he waited a long time and everything else, so they seem to have gotten past it. David healed some, right? So thinking this through now from David's perspective, let's jump on his thinking for a minute here. David is both king and father, in this situation. As a father, David longed to be with his son Absalom and be in good, back in good standing with him. But as a king, which he has to keep in effect too, he's gotta try to, to wrestle with both of these mindsets, okay? As a king, he doesn't wanna make it look like he's willing to bend the law or even ignore the law just because this is his son. So David, you know, he didn't wanna set a precedent of saying, well, we're going to overlook the law at this point. You know, we know he killed his brother. It was a bad situation. It was basically murder, vigilante-type killing, and we're just going to gloss that over, you know, because he's my son. David did not want to set that precedent and then have others start using that, right, and saying, hey, I had the same situation. I killed my brother, but I had a good reason. I can justify it, right? So his concern would be that other, me, other people might take advantage of this too, and they might start bending the law. Now, people would never do that, right? <laughs> Just because somebody else is bending the law, nobody would think, well, I can do that too. Yeah, unfortunately, we see that all too often and all too well, right? You give people an inch, and they will take a mile. 
And that's why the Lord keeps his standards so high. So I feel for David in this. He's wrestling with this as a father and as a king. And there's no easy answer. That's why I said he gets really complicated when you start looking at this story. What would you do in that situation? I mean, there's some options David didn't take, which I think he should have, and we'll look at those in a minute. But, but right now, David is in a, a very, very messed up place, okay? So this lady goes on. She's not done working David over yet. <laughs> I'm amazed at the boldness of this woman. <laughs> Maybe she knows, I don't think David would hit a woman, so I can get away with saying all this. Maybe that's why Joab sent her. I don't know. So verse 14. She says, for we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. She was saying that our life gets over very quickly. And it's just like you can't get that water back after it's been spilled on the ground. You may not get another opportunity to reconcile with your son if you let these opportunities slip away one after another. And you know, this is good for us to hear too. There are some things that we need to take care of when the opportunity presents itself. Too many times we might kick the can down the road and think, I'll just take care of that later. But sadly, sometimes later never comes. And before we know it, our time is gone and we lost the chance to take care of some important things in life. <clears throat> If something comes to mind right now as we go through this, something that needs to be taken care of that you've maybe put off, then you might want to take that as a general reminder from the Lord that he may be trying to spare you the regret later on of not taking care of the matter while you still had time. So like this lady was telling King David, the opportunity will not always be there. Verse 14 goes on. Yet God does not take away a life but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. So this is true, that God's heart is reconciliation. And she's trying to convince David that God would not be upset with David if he shows mercy to Absalom in order to reconcile him. She was strongly implying that David didn't need to worry or feel convicted over this because not, God is not against mercy He's strongly for it. And that's true, okay? God is strongly for mercy. Now, some of the things she's saying here are true. God does love to show mercy and grace. But the difference is, when God does that, he does it the right way. I mean, think that through. He doesn't bend the law or ignore the law to do it. When the Lord forgave us of our sins, he didn't just sweep our sins under the rug. God didn't ignore the law. And Jesus even said that he came to fulfill the law, and he did do that. You know, Jesus legally paid for our sins that, so that the Lord is free to show us mercy on this side of the cross. He didn't take any shortcuts. He did it the right way. When we're faced with a complicated situation like this, we need to prayerfully ask what is the right way to solve this and not just leave it up to our emotions. And we should definitely not leave it up to our own way of thinking. The Lord warns us about that, right? Proverbs 3, lean not on your own understanding. That's why we need to prayerfully ask, what is the right thing to do, Lord? Then we can check God's word for guidance to make sure we're doing things the right way. 
And that would have been excellent for David to, to figure that out, you know. But he got caught in this one. Uh, verse 15 uh, goes on. And it says here, uh, she says, Your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. So she's saying that if David doesn't rescue her and her son in this situation, then they're both going to die because they have no one to take, she has no one to take care of her. And then she and her son would be losing out, as she puts it here, on the inheritance of God. How do you like the way people slip in the God thing when they're trying to convince you of something? You know, that always helps when you know you're dealing with a spiritual person. Make sure you slip the God thing in there somewhere. So we have to be in our guard when people start doing that to us. They're definitely up to something, you know, when they start to ring that bell. So just know that. And she cleverly says here in verse 16, I knew you would listen and do the right thing, okay? So I could just hear, hear her grandmotherly tone coming out as she says that too. I knew you would listen and do the right thing, you know? <laughs> so this lady sure is bold. I mean, she's amazing. Uh, she knows what she's doing too. So <laughs> she, she was wise, like it says at the beginning here. He really did find a wise woman, apparently pretty quick on her feet and knows how to, to take the information Joab gave her and to apply it there. So I think what she's getting at here is she's saying, look, I knew you were going to help me. So it's kind of like, why aren't you doing the right thing for your son in her estimation, right? So verse 17, your maidservant said, the word of my Lord, the king, will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord, the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. <laughs> and now she puts a little icing on the deal, and she even sugarcoats it a little with some flattery, because flattery never hurts, right? <laughs> so you can see her saying, you're like the angel of God, and all this, wow, lady, you, you know how to do this. You got David down, and now he's probably waiting here and trying kind of to wade the, the water and keep his head afloat, you know, and then she's just putting this little nicety on there. You're such a man of God. Uh, verse 18, then the king answered and he said to the woman, please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. Okay. Uh, he says, <laughs> and the woman said, please let my Lord, the king speak. <laughs> so David knows something's going on at this point. I think he heard the flattery that must have set off some bells with him. And he's about to figure out who's behind this. And this woman, isn't she amazing in how diplomatic and eloquent she is in her response? Please let my Lord the King speak. <laughs> oh, amazing. Verse 19, so the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, as you live, my Lord the King, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left hand from anything that my Lord the King has spoken. <laughs> And she says, for your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maiden servant. So David knew something was up, and he figured that only Joab would be this bold and this clever to put this together. So Joab knows him, but guess what? David knows Joab too. <laughs> and how do you like her response? 
she decided that a little more flattery couldn't hurt, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not when you're standing before a powerful king. And then she spills the beans that this whole thing was Joab's idea and that she was commanded by him to do this. So she lays all of it over on Joab's side, I guess, just in case David gets the notion to do something here. She's going to say, I'm, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, verse 20. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done these things. I wonder if he told her that one too. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the flattery goes on. And she even adds that David must have been given some divine help because he is so wise. <laughs> Man, you got to watch your billfold when you talk to this lady. Make sure you got one hand on that billfold. Say, okay, keep talking. I hear you now. But she does acknowledge that Joab had a definite purpose in doing this. I mean, I think that's interesting. I don't know if that was her or Joab talking, but, you know, she says, your servant Joab, he did this to bring about this change of affairs. He was trying to help David get his son back. And he knew that David needed a big nudge to get that process started. So we have to ask, you know, how big of a nudge do you think we need to take care of some things that we've been putting off? Verse 21 goes on. Uh, the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face, and he bowed himself, and he thanked the king. And it, it's saying, he literally, he blessed the king. Oh, bless you for doing this, you know. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So David, you know, he agrees to have Absalom back, and Joab was very grateful you know, we see an interesting side of Joab here. Although he's one of these tough guys up front, he does have a soft side. You just don't usually see it too often. And here he is very happy that he was able to help David because it concerned him that David was wanting to restore Absalom, but he really needed that push to get started. And David, he actually accepted this push, apparently, okay? Uh, verse 23, so Joab arose, and he gets up off the ground, you know, after his excitement here. And he went to Geshur, and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. I don't know what they were thinking at that point. I'm guessing they thought, well, David's just not up to it today. So, you know, have him come back and just have him go to his house. Well, this is going to last for quite a long time too. So David, we see him, you know, facing this dilemma again and both being the father who wants his son back and the king and in, in wondering, am I going to do make a mistake in this situation if I'm not careful? So he's going to make reconciliation in a sense, but it's only partial rec uh, reconciliation. So you can tell right away that this is going to have its own set of problems with it. And by handling it this way, David doesn't resolve the deep bitterness that's been growing in Absalom. Remember, Absalom, you know, he's been away for three years, and he was hoping to be restored with his dad before this, I'm sure. 
So by now, he's a very frustrated man. Can you imagine? You're the next king, as far as you know, and your dad's not talking to you for three years. Hasn't said a word. No letter, no text, no anything. Haven't heard anything from dad, right? So three years gone by. Now dad says, okay, come on back. And I come back and dad says, I don't want to see you though. I mean, you can come back in town, but stay there. This should be a good encouragement for us to deal with damaged relationships and not put them off so long. Because if we wait and keep putting them off, then we're giving our enemy, the devil, time to allow the bitterness to grow. And bitterness can be a powerful and destructive force if we allow it to grow. That's why the Lord warns us against us. Take a look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament. It's amazing. The Lord shows us something here that really fits with this situation and maybe ours too if we're, we're stuck in that same dilemma that David's got going here. Uh, Hebrews 12, down to verse 14. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And look what it says. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And notice, it doesn't just affect that person. And by this, many become defiled. Well, David didn't apparently think this through from Absalom's side that this bitterness has been growing because as it continues to grow in Absalom, it's going to defile a lot of people. A lot of people are going to be affected by that. And we'll see that uh, next, uh, next couple of weeks down the road, Lord willing. So let's go back to Second Samuel 14 and down to verse 25. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his great character? No, <laughs> for his good looks. <laughs> From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So Absalom was about as perfect in his looks as you could imagine. You know, some of the stars in Hollywood, they say that they airbrush their blemishes away when you see a picture of them, and they use, you know, makeup to hide their blemishes when they're on the screen. But in Absalom's case, none of that was needed. I mean, when you saw him, you probably went, wow. It's one of those people you just can't look away from. It's like, is there nothing that, that's wrong with his you know, complexion, his appearance, anything? And some have said that this outward handsome appearance would be appealing to Israel and having him as their next king. Do you remember how thrilled Israel was when they found King Saul and how he had such good looks and big stature? You know, that, that impresses people. And the people of Israel, they went for that too. The people there seemed to be more interested in how they looked on the outside than what kind of character they had on the inside. And this is where it starts to look a whole lot like our country. <laughs> the politicians they put before us, you notice, are usually attractive on the outside, and they think that sells good enough on its own. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people fall for that. Rather than look at where they stand on important issues, they just look at the candidate's outward appearance, you know? And this is, like I said, almost way too close to home when you think about some of this. So verse 26 goes on. Not only does he have these amazing appearances, he's got some head of hair too. It says, when he cut the hair of his head, and at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him, when he cut it, 
he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. So look how vain this guy was. He weighed his hair. And I'm thinking he probably only got it cut once a year so he could brag on that and say, did you see how much hair I just had cut off of here? And it's about five pounds according to the weight measure they gave us there. Okay, That's a lot of hair. Yeah. So this guy was good looking. He had a very thick head of hair as well. And it would just be very hard to find any flaws at all with Absalom on the outside. But don't look on the inside because his bitterness had grown and it was ugly, as we're going to get to see. Verse 27 goes on. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter. And it says her name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So Absalom honored his sister Tamar, who had been raped right by Amnon, and he named his own daughter the same name. So we always had a tender spot for Tamar, his sister. Verse 28 goes on, And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Another two years go by. And since David didn't address this, the bitterness just continued to grow and grow inside Absalom. Once he had Absalom back in Jerusalem, David could have dealt with the issues that separated him. He could have pointed out what Absalom did wrong. He could have seen where Absalom was right now with those issues. And then he could have gotten some assurances maybe for his future behavior that he's not going to do something like this again. But David just sat on it and he didn't deal with it at all. Verse 29, therefore Absalom sent for Job after these two years of waiting and not being able to have a, a conversation with dad, being this close. Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. He was going to, he knows I know my dad will talk to Joab. So I'm going to get that guy again and we're going to send him out and have him open the door here. He says, but he would not come. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. So Absalom decides that he's going to get some attention one way or another. That's kind of what we see going on in the country right now, isn't it? One way or another, right or wrong, we're going to get some attention here. So he does an evil thing, but it ends up working, apparently, for the guy. So does this, when you see this in Absalom, does it remind you of rebellious, spoiled little brat that keeps screaming and throwing a fit until he gets his way? <laughs> it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hurt. You know, if I got to do some damage, I'm going to be hurt. Now, think this through with me. Joab is probably very busy, <laughs> you know, but Absalom has all this free time on his hands. So it may not have been that Joab was actually ignoring him. But Joab was probably just way too busy to come at his beck and call, you know, while he's pushing for it here. But this stunt was enough to get a response from Joab. So verse 31, then Joab arose and he came to Absalom's house and he said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Job, look, I sent to you saying, come here so that I may send you to the king to say, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, iniquity in me let him execute me. 
So Absalom was tired of waiting. And I'm, this is a long time, right? He's waited three years in Geshur. He comes back, he's waited another two years. And he's probably thinking, this is five years of my life. I've been waiting for dad, and dad has never come around. So he's saying, either forgive me and give me a plan to get restored or execute me if I'm guilty. You know, that would be a very frustrating place to feel stuck like that. So I'll give Absalom that. That had to be very, very frustrating. Verse 33, so Joab went to the king and he told him, so he delivered the message. Why have I come from his share? It'd be better for me to still be there. So he, he, he gives the message to the king. It says, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. So I wonder, you know, after Joab got involved with this and losing his field or whatever, I don't know how much was burned up by the time they were able to, to get to it, probably the whole thing. I wonder if Joab was regretting, regretting his decision to bring Absalom back in the first place, you know. Sometimes you do pay a price for helping people. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Yeah. So David called for Absalom. Absalom comes and he gives the appearance of humility when he got there. He, he lays on the ground. You know, David gives him a kiss to show his acceptance. And that's it. <laughs> There's no great show of acceptance no celebrating his return, kind of melodramatic, you know. This was not what Absalom was hoping for, I'm sure. So it appears that David was trying to maintain his royal appearance in this matter. If you notice in that verse, it used the word king four times when it refers to David here. It doesn't even say David. It doesn't say his dad. It just says the king, the king, the king. So it appears that this is a very formal proceeding, you know. I think David, again, missed an opportunity to work things out better through his son. You know, this is going to cause some very major problems for David down the road. Now, this is a very trying passage to go through, very, I mean, you probably feel the frustration as we kind of waded through this. It's like, man, there's stuff going on. It's not being dealt with. There's more stuff being going on and it's not being dealt with. So at the very end of this passage, you feel that you didn't solve the problem. And that's because David's problem relationship with Absalom wasn't resolved. You know, I think the Lord wants us to feel that frustration. So we don't allow things to go on and on for years without trying to fix them in our own life, at least as completely as we can. So we're going to have more to examine on this next time, Lord willing. But let's just let this passage do its work on us and allow it to, you know, let us sense that frustration. And it's like, Lord, help us not to get to a point like this where there's just frustration day after day after day. And, and we ask the Lord, just let that passage, let it work on us exactly the way he wants it to work on us. So a very strange place to stop. But we're going to stop right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of truth. And Lord, again, we come to a passage that's very difficult to go through. Lord, it hits us emotionally. It hits us in our mind and is frustrating. And I know that's exactly what you're trying to get us to see. So Lord, I pray, help us not to, to fall into a place where we just keep putting it on the shelf over and over and over and over again, Lord. 
We pray you give us wisdom. We pray that you give us the right opportunity. We pray for healing, Lord. We just ask you to work all these things out. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that, that really sensed you speaking to them about this, Lord, I ask you to just work in their heart. And Lord, let them have the right time. Let them have the right attitude. Let them work it out, Lord, in, in your patience, in your time. And Lord, we just pray that you would, you would richly bless relationships. Father, we thank you for taking this time with us. And Lord, we return all the praise, honor, and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.